Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 75 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hey, good. I was a bit shocked by 75. Go us. But um, yeah, ready. other than that, ready to get into it. It's not really a milestone, but I think just being three quarters of the way to 100, it, yeah. it sort of feels like something. I don't <laughs> like know. it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and helping us along the way are our wonderful Patreon supporters. Uh, we have a couple of shout outs this week. Yes. Thank you so much. And welcome to Emma Dunlop and Nicole Chick. Thanks for the support. Appreciate it. The case we are discussing today contains graphic content and crimes occurring in a culturally significant region for Indigenous Australians. Some of the content is difficult to hear and may be triggering, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Nineteenth of June, nineteen eighty-seven, Fitzroy Crossing, Western Australia. Not long after sunrise, Peter Lutenegger was flying his chopper across the Jubilee Downs station, singing along to a few of his favourite Slim Dusty songs. He was mustering horses in preparation for the upcoming Fitzroy Crossing Rodeo, a popular annual event that sees many people travel to the area, when he noticed something unusual on the ground below. It appeared to be a vehicle, but it was well covered by some form of camouflage, The power of his chopper blade slightly blew the green covering off the vehicle and Peter thought he'd seen a man lying down inside, a man with no shirt on, camouflaged pants and a bandana wrapped around his head. The bitter cold of night and blistering heat of day are two things that make the Australian outback one of the harshest, most unforgiving places on earth. The tropical top end through to the arid red centre are also some of the most beautiful places to visit in the world. The pristine landscapes, cascading waterfalls and breathtaking gorges are interspersed amongst some of the driest deserts on the planet. Dry as it is, it's still home to an abundance of wildlife – kangaroos, emus, dingoes, wild brumbies and camels, 
and a plethora of bird life. For tens of thousands of years, it's also been home to Indigenous Australians, many of who still have strong connection to the outback. Some Indigenous Australians call it the Never Never, a vast and ancient area home to a number of powerful spirits. One of the northernmost areas of Australia's sprawling outback is the Kimberley region, a region that has fewer people per capita across its 423,000 square kilometre area than anywhere else in the world. It's a huge area, about the size of California and comparable to that of Germany, Holland and Belgium combined. It's home to much of the aforementioned beautiful scenery. There's also one of the world's largest meteorite craters in the Kimberley at a spot called Wolf Creek Crater National Park, a location that undoubtedly inspired the name of one of Australia's most well-known homegrown horror movies made in 2005. And it would be across the West Australian Northern Territory border, a few hundred clicks northeast of this location, that another potentially inspiring series of tragic events began some 18 years earlier. In early June of 1987, Timber Creek was full of passionate fishermen. With the deep and blue waters of the Victoria River running through its surrounding valleys, Timber Creek was a prime and pretty location to catch barramundi. Arriving in the area on the 8th of June was 70-year-old Marcus Bullen and his wife Winifred. With them was their son Lance, who was 42, and his wife Joan. The foursome had been holidaying around the outback for several weeks, and now they were making their way back home to Perth, travelling west on the Victoria Highway. They arrived at the Wayside Inn and Caravan Park in the afternoon. The plan was to camp the night, enjoy a hot shower, have a leisurely fish nearby and a bit of a relax before the next leg of the trip. The wayside was in the Gregory National Park, close to the Victoria River and some of the best barra fishing spots, and Marcus and Lance wanted to visit one of these, throw a line in and try their luck. After a relaxing evening, the pair set off around 9am the following morning on the 9th. Back at camp, Winifred and Joan potted around, expecting their husbands to arrive back within an hour or two, or at the latest in the early afternoon. But that didn't happen. At first, they were just concerned, but that turned to outright worry as it got later in the day and they hadn't come back. Winifred and Joan notified the local police at Timber Creek. Constables Martin Plum and Brett Thorpe attended and they began to search for the pair at some of the most popular local fishing spots. But as night set in, the darkness made it difficult for searchers to continue. Police scaled things back with the plan to head back out at first light. While police had concerns for the pair's welfare and the area was potentially dangerous with a number of deadly saltwater crocodiles in the local rivers, it was more likely Marcus and Lance's car had just broken down and they'd find them in the morning. At first light on June the 10th, the police resumed searching and soon they found the Bullens Mitsubishi Sigma station wagon. It was next to the Victoria River, had been driven into the riverbed sand and dumped at the high water line, and then set alight. It was completely burnt out by fire. Nearby, drag marks led police to a pair of shallow graves in the sand, where the bodies of Marcus and Lance Bullen were found. Police sealed off the area and notified the Darwin Major Crime Squad before delivering the devastating news to Winifred and Joan. Police were stunned at first. It was a brutal and shocking attack in the usually peaceful local area. A team of police from Darwin flew down and additional task force members came by road to aid in the search of the scene and surrounding area. 
Forensic experts were brought in, including pathologist Kevin Lee, who was disturbed while inspecting the scene by a media helicopter which flew too low and blew sand and potentially evidence all around the place. Police took video and photographs of the scene, aerial surveys from above and conducted line searches of the area. Critical pieces of evidence uncovered included vehicle tracks, tyre impressions, footwear impressions of a pair of shoes with very distinctive ripple-shaped sole marks as well as drag marks of the bodies. Initially, it was thought that the Bullens had been stabbed. Indeed, this was errantly noted by a police officer who said words to this effect upon entering a local bar after the bodies had been located. Local media caught on and reported this too, but further examination of the bodies in crime scene proved otherwise. Police soon found a 223 cartridge casing, confirming the Bullens had indeed been shot dead. The killer had gone to lengths to clean up the area, had buried the bodies and set the car on fire in an attempt to destroy the evidence, but he'd missed this bullet casing and left behind a footprint. After a thorough examination of the crime scene, police pieced together the likely series of events that had transpired. The killer was likely in the area already, or arrived quite shortly after the Bullens did. He probably waited for them to get out of the vehicle before appearing from the bush and ordering them to lay on the ground, face down in the dirt, before executing them, with close-range shots to their backs with the 223 caliber firearm. Bloodstaining was located next to where the vehicle had pulled up, which was identified as being the Bullens, and it was surmised that they had likely died within seconds. The killer had then stripped both Mark and Lance of their clothing and anything else that could be tied to them or him, and taken the number plates off their vehicle before driving the station wagon into the nearby scrub and setting it on fire. He then dragged Marcus and Lance's bodies to the high water marks on the riverbed and buried them in shallow graves. As the post-mortems were being conducted, police began their investigation. Firstly, they had to look into potential motives. Marcus was a former deputy mayor of Fremantle, so there was the possibility he had rivals and potentially enemies in these circles, but inquiries showed that wasn't the case. Police then called in an Aboriginal tracker named Reggie Tatia from Gibb River to comb the scene for clues. He formed the opinion the killer had stalked the Bullens from the scrub, but otherwise found no evidence that he was still in the area. As it became more likely that this was a random, isolated attack... News of the brutal double murder swept across the top end. Bulletins were posted for people to look out for suspicious vehicles and people were told to reconsider travel or move in convoys if they had to. The roads became noticeably quieter as police continued searching for the culprit throughout the Northern Territory. Across the border in Western Australia, many campers and outback travellers had heard the reports of the double murder, but it was a long way away from them and there was less concern, particularly for those who had plans to venture to remote campsites. Another prime location for Barramundi fishing was the Pentecost River in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. Again, it was swarming with crocs, so swimming wasn't the best option, but casting a line in was fine, and one of the best spots was the crossing on the Gibb River Road, a prominent red dirt track in the region. And it was at this spot that 25-year-old Julie Warren and her fiancé, 26-year-old Philip Walkermeyer, had set up camp on Saturday the 13th of June 1987. With them was their friend, 36-year-old Terry Bolt. The trio had set off from the nearby town of Kununurra in Philip's Toyota troop carrier. 
and set up camp some three kilometres from the actual river crossing. Julie worked at the local supermarket in Kununurra and was described as a gentlewoman who loved camping. Philip, too, was described as a gentle giant who loved people, fishing and camping. He was president of the local squash club and worked with Terry at the local airstrip for the Department of Aviation. After setting up camp and getting their fishing rods ready and bait hooked up, the trio were joined by another pair of friends, David McKenzie and Daniel Rowe. David actually worked at the Department of Aviation with Philip and Terry too. The day went well, the five friends fishing away the afternoon and evening before hitting the sack sometime around midnight. After throwing the lines in again the following morning and having some breakfast together, David and Daniel took off back to Kununurra. Philip, Julie and Terry relaxed at the campsite for a little while longer before beginning to pack up their things. The Pentecost River Crossing was a popular spot with local campers and four-wheel drivers. And about 50 metres away from their campsite, another pair of guys, Des Murphy and Branko Mijevic, were casting a line in as well. They saw the trio packing up and having a drink and Philip's tinny docked on the riverbank. They also noticed a vehicle parked in a dry creek bed a short distance away. It looked like a Toyota utility with a fibreglass canopy. It had a number of reddish-pink decals along its sides and green number plates, suggesting it was from Queensland. The pair moved away from their fishing spot back to their own camp sometime before midday, by which time Julie, Philip and Terry would have almost been packed up and ready to go. Unfortunately, the trio wouldn't make the return trip to Kununurra as their mates had earlier that morning. Around 4pm that same afternoon, a truck driver named Fred Pierce Young was driving his Kenworth down Gibb River Road when he saw a plume of black smoke from above the Pentecost River crossing area. As he got closer, he saw where the smoke was emanating from, some kilometres back from the road itself, and it appeared to be coming from a gully. The smoke was very dark and Fred guessed it was potentially a fuel fire of some kind. There were no other vehicles around that he could see at first, but after he went through the crossing itself and past the track entrance to the picnic area, he came upon a hill and noticed in his rear view another vehicle. Fred pulled his Kenworth over to let them pass, and he observed a slightly built man driving a white Toyota Hilux-style utility with a canopy and red flash decals. The vehicle had Queensland plates and was seemingly loaded up with camping gear in the back. Fred didn't think too much of all this at the time and continued on with his drive. The following morning on Monday, the 15th of June, David McKenzie arrived to work and noticed that neither Philip or Terry were there. Thinking this quite strange, he tried calling Julie to see if she was home, and she wasn't, nor had she turned up at work at the supermarket either. David and another colleague of his, Kim Smith, then drove back to the Pentecost River where he'd camped with the trio the day prior. They quickly located Philip's troop carrier nearby and it had been completely gutted by fire. In the rear of the vehicle was the outboard motor from Philip's boat, a gas bottle and other camping equipment. David and Kim then went to where they'd camped and saw some small spots of blood on the ground and they also noticed Philip's boat on the opposite side of the riverbank. It was clear to David something had gone wrong and the pair contacted the police to attend. Upon arrival, they searched the surrounding area and around quarter past four in the afternoon located Julie's body. She was lying face down on the riverbank some 500 metres from their campsite towards Gibb River Road 
She'd been shot around her right shoulder area and was stripped of all of her clothing. Police located Philip's body around 7.45am the following morning. He was closer to camp and had been dragged into the Pentecost River. He had significant injuries to the right side of his head, two shots in his back and one in his right shoulder. He'd also been stripped naked. Within two hours, police had also located Terry's body in the river. He had suffered a similar brutal end and had been dragged into the river after having his clothes removed. Police again deduced from the scene that the killer had likely been watching the campers, using high ground and long grass as cover. He'd inched closer, stalking them from a creek bed before striking, using a .223 calibre firearm. He'd shot Julie first, followed by Philip and Terry. They'd managed to scramble away before the killer caught up and executed them. All three were naked and had been shot in the back, their car, clothing and equipment set alight before being dragged into the shallows of the river, where the killer likely hoped crocodiles would consume their bodies. But they hadn't, and again, he hadn't cleaned up everything at the scene. Police found five bullet casings this time with metal detectors, alongside more footprints with a rippled sole impression. These things, alongside the clear MO, left everyone in no doubt these murders were connected to those of the Bullens in Timber Creek some days earlier. The question now was, where was this lunatic going to strike next? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The news of the Pentecost River murders sent the police into overdrive and the public into a headspin. Julie, Philip and Terry were all well known in the local area, which was generally a friendly, peaceful and safe place. Now, that notion was being put to the test by a madman, and possibly more than one, who was on the loose. No one was on the roads anymore, people had abandoned campsites and taken refuge in caravan parks. And national headlines were now being made as the hunt for the elusive Kimberley killer or killers was underway. Fear spread as fast as the word itself, that he or they could strike anywhere, anytime, and no one knew where or who they were. Police put up roadblocks and began stopping vehicles that came through, and a police command was set up for the newly formed task force. Detective Sergeant Kearney from the West Australian Police Major Crime Squad was designated as officer in charge of the investigation and Detective Inspector Alan Bickford coordinated the operation. Meanwhile in Perth, a seven-man police tactical response group was promptly organised and flown to the Kimberley. Some wanted the SAS to be flown in. They were also based in Perth, highly skilled in warfare and had trained in the Kimberley but it was the state police's elite unit who were ultimately called upon to do what they had been trained to. The Tactical Response Group, or TRG, set up a base at Home Valley Station, a huge cattle station over half a million acres in size, 
which offers a range of accommodation and activities in the East Kimberley region. Amidst the towering gorges and red ranges dappled with billabongs, the TRG assembled themselves, checking their radios, preparing their firearms and ammunition. As they did, a number of aircraft undertook aerial surveillance in the region, looking out for any noticeable dust plumes made by vehicles. More roadblocks were set up along the Western Australia Northern Territory border, and police received reports from witnesses at Pentecost River who had seen both the campers and the white Toyota with the red-pink decals. They deduced that the only way this killer could have gotten to the Pentecost River was to go through Kununurra, so he must have stopped there for at least petrol. He may have even stocked up, and with supplies, he could hole up for weeks in the outback at this time of year. Finding him wasn't going to be an easy task. In the meantime, using the vehicle description they now had, Police put out a call across the country for any stolen or missing Toyota Hiluxes or Forerunners and began tracking down owners of these vehicles in the regions of Queensland where it was likely registered. During these inquiries, a report came in that one of these vehicles had been rented from Avis Rental Vehicles at the Brisbane airport some weeks earlier. It hadn't been returned by its due date and the man who'd rented it was a German tourist named Joseph Schwab. So this was a solid lead, and police made inquiries with immigration about this man. But was Joseph Schwab the madman or simply an earlier victim of this killer? And they hadn't found his body yet. That question would soon be answered, but not before a local helicopter pilot gave police the next leg up they needed. Early on the 19th of June 1987, a man named Peter Lutenegger was flying his chopper across the Jubilee Downs station in Fitzroy Crossing, He was mustering horses in preparation for the upcoming Fitzroy Crossing Rodeo, a popular annual event that saw many people travel to the area every year. While singing along to a few Slim Dusty tunes, Peter noticed something unusual on the ground below in the bush. It appeared to be a vehicle. Having heard the reports of the Toyota 4Runner or Hilux being connected with the recent Pentecost River murders, he decided to fly a little lower and take a look. While he was some 800 kilometres southwest of Kununurra, this killer had displayed a willingness to travel after the first pair of murders in Timber Creek. So it was certainly possible this was him. It was also possible it was a tourist, even though it was an unusual place for campers to be set up. As Peter flew lower, he confirmed it was a vehicle, but it was well covered by some form of camouflage. The power of his chopper blades actually blew the green covering off the vehicle a bit, and he might have seen a man lying down inside. It was suspicious enough for him to fly the 15 kilometres to the nearest police station in Fitzroy Crossing, where he reported the sighting. With the whole of the Kimberley in virtual lockdown and the public terrified, police weren't going to take any chances looking into this, especially with the thousands of pending tourists for the upcoming rodeo. If this was the killer and he was planning to attend the rodeo, they could have a tragedy of epic proportions on their hands. The seven members of the TRG, under the command of Sergeant Bill Matson, were flown to the remote corner of the Jubilee Down station. They arrived around midday and established their rules of engagement while preparing their tactical gear, sniper rifles and flak jackets. The vehicle spotted was reported as a white Toyota. Investigators had since followed the trail of the rented vehicle from Avis in Brisbane, registration 338 PNZ, across the Northern Territory border and into Western Australia. 
This was likely the vehicle, dressed up in some kind of camouflage, concealed in this area not frequented by tourists. Still, it could have been an innocent camper they had to approach with caution. After securing the area, a police aircraft was called in to try and flush anyone out of the vehicle. They also conducted some aerial surveillance of the area to brief the TRG team with more detail. The elite police unit, clad in their camouflage and tactical gear, began to move in closer towards the vehicle at ground level. As they moved swiftly but cautiously through the low-lying scrub and red dirt, they came within one and a half kilometres of the vehicle. It was around then they heard the rifle fire. Another police aircraft flew overhead as the TRG crept closer, and from within the four-wheel drive vehicle, a man emerged. He was shirtless, wearing camouflage pants and what was later described as a Rambo-style bandana. He began firing at the police aircraft with a Seiko 308 bolt-action rifle fitted with a telescopic sight. The aircraft pilots thought the plane had been hit. They tried to avoid further damage but wanted to keep eyes on the shooter at the same time. Meanwhile, TRG officers took cover behind ant hills and other parts of low-lying scrub. Sergeant Matson yelled out to the offender, identifying themselves and asking for his surrender. The shooter turned his attention from the aircraft to the ground and began to open fire in the TRG's direction. The TRG responded, returning fire and using a combined tear gas and fireworks ammunition to try and flush the shooter out. It also had the side effect of setting the surrounding bush on fire too. The area was soon engulfed in flames. It became apparent that the shirtless gunman had planned for something like this. Around his camp, he'd placed a number of ammunition stores, but with the raging fire, these were now beginning to explode. As police continued to exchange fire with the gunman, it was only a matter of time before someone got hit. Thankfully, it was the shooter who copped it first, when a bullet from Officer Bob Brown's M16 rifle shattered the stock of the shooter's Seiko and minced his left thumb in the process. But this didn't stop him. He then reached into the rear of the Toyota and pulled out two more firearms, a Ruger Mini 223 and a 556 semi-automatic rifle. Both of these firearms could be operated with one hand and had large magazines. The shooter continued firing at police and began to retreat in a westerly direction. He continued in this direction, the TRG advancing as he did, and he repeatedly employed the military tactic of firing at the enemy several times, stifling their advance, and then moving to a new position, rinsing and repeating until it's possible to escape. He clearly had some training, or maybe he was just an avid reader. Luckily, no police had been hit just yet. However, one officer, Ed Trindle, had got around through his sleeve. The next consideration from the TRG was the Toyota, With the gunman retreating west and returning fire, it was still not known if anyone else was in the vehicle, potentially an accomplice, but more likely hostages. TRG officer Bob Brown then ran through the smoky haze under covering fire and got into the Toyota. Flames were beginning to engulf the vehicle, which he discovered didn't have anyone else inside, but it did have potentially vital forensic evidence. The keys were in the ignition, so Bob turned it over, put it in gear, and drove out through the flames. This heroic action would prove to be vital in securing aforementioned forensic evidence. Meanwhile, the gunman was still moving west, firing intermittently at the TRG as they returned fire and continued to advance on him. When the gunfire ceased momentarily and the smoke and flames cleared, 
An observer in an overhead police aircraft saw something. It was the shooter, shirtless, lying face down, not moving a muscle. He was 20 or so metres ahead of the police and appeared to have blood on his torso. The TIG advanced and inspected the man, who had received a bullet wound to the middle back right side of his spine, which exited his heart. He had no shoes on, a left hand injury and a shrapnel injury in his backside. A doctor wasn't needed. He was deceased. The area was preserved for investigators who then combed through the Toyota 4Runner. Inside, they located a pair of boots with distinctive rippled soles matching those prints found at both murder scenes. They also located bank books and camping gear from some of the victims. It was confirmed that this Toyota was the same one 26-year-old German tourist Joseph Schwab had rented in Brisbane. But was this shirtless shooter him or was Joseph Schwab one of his victims? It didn't take long to confirm that when they located his passport within the vehicle and the picture was a clear match of the ordinary-looking dead gunman. Joseph Schwab's body was then flown to Perth, where fingerprint experts formally identified him and a post-mortem examination was carried out. The police and the likes of chopper pilot Peter Lutenegger were being held as heroes, while the devastated families of the five victims were burying and grieving over the loss of their loved ones. The hunt was finally over, and those in the top end and red centre were undoubtedly relieved and breathing much easier. But now the big question was, who was this guy and why had he done this? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Joseph Thomas Schwab hailed from West Germany, the Allied side of the divided country prior to its reunification in 1990. He was born in Starnberg on November 25, 1960, to parents Joseph and Johanna. He also had a sister. The family lived in the town of Pocking, just south of Munich. Joseph grew into a quiet but polite young man, someone who was shy but amiable and happy to help those in need. He had only a few friends and never married or had any children. In his mid-teens, Joseph joined a rifle club called Wildeschutz, a place he'd develop a strong interest in firearms and shooting. He stayed at the club until he was 21. A man named Helmut Schmiedel commented to the media that Joseph had once threatened to shoot him at a hotel where members of the gun club drank. On another occasion, a man named Renatu Schlepp was threatened by Joseph after a brawl one evening. Renatu claimed that Joseph lay in wait for him one night, three days later, armed with a gun. But Renatu got the upper hand on this occasion and clubbed him over the head with a piece of wood. So perhaps there were some signs of what was going on in Joseph Schwab's mind, and he was just quiet enough about it that no one really noticed, aside from these seemingly isolated incidents. Joseph had lived in Australia for a few years in the early 1980s. 
He arrived in the Adelaide area in June of 1981 and found work as a cabinet maker and a place to stay in Henley Beach. During this time, he also joined the Southern Cross Pistol Club in Torrensville, where he was able to continue shooting, both at the club and out in the bush. Big shooting was a favourite pastime of Joseph's. He'd regularly take off in his land cruiser to shoot wild hogs. By May of 1984, Joseph's work prospects in Australia had seemingly dried up and he headed back to his native West Germany. Here, he got work as a security guard. Took a while to land the job, almost 12 months, but he stayed in the role for two years, wearing a Ruger 357 Magnum revolver on his hip throughout. He gave his family no indication there'd been any trouble with the law in Australia, and indeed, Australian authorities had no records on him. But in West Germany, Joseph had a few brushes with the law, petty crimes such as break-ins of cars, apartments, and theft from a restaurant. Small things, but they did display an inherent willingness to offend and re-offend. Despite this, his family doctor said he was in good health, mentally and physically, and had no concerning signs as of 1986. In March of 1987, Joseph travelled to Australia via Bangkok, Thailand, with 5,400 worth of traveller's checks in hand. He arrived in Brisbane on the 18th of April and checked into the Atchley Hotel and Queen Street in Brisbane. In the following days, he cashed his traveller's checks at Westpac and Commonwealth Bank branches and scammed a $1,000 cash advance from the ANZ, telling them he'd lost some of his traveller's checks. He hadn't, and with the cash, he hired a Toyota 4Runner from the Avis rental at Brisbane Airport on the 22nd of April. He used the name and address of an unrelated person, also named Schwab, from back in West Germany. The following day, Joseph attended the Five Ways Firearms Shop in Logan Road, just down the road from the Gabba. Here, he put a deposit down on four guns, a Ruger Mini 14 223 calibre rifle, a Seiko Bolt Action 308, a Bruno Bolt Action 22, and a Winchester 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. A day later again and Joseph fixed up the balance, purchased 3,000 rounds of ammunition and took off into the desert for what was presumed to be a shooting trip but turned out to be a murder spree. Along the way, he stopped for the usual things, food, petrols, minor vehicle repairs and later a couple of people reported seeing him during this time before he murdered the Bullens in Timber Creek. Barbara Robertson saw him near Point Stewart at the Carmel Plains on June the 4th A number of buffalo had been shot at this location and their horns removed. Ten sets of horns were later found within the rented forerunner that Joseph had been driving. And then on the 9th of June, Helen Anderson, who was actually the owner at the Wayside Inn where the Bullens stayed, saw Joseph in the forerunner. She had actually received a be-on-the-lookout advice from local police for a stolen Toyota forerunner, unrelated to Joseph Schwab. This was an NT-registered vehicle but when she saw his forerunner, she reported it anyway, despite it having Queensland plates. On the off chance, it was the stolen vehicle and had the plates changed. Neither of these sightings were enough at the time to warrant significant police attention, evidently, and Joseph Schwab continued on to commit the crimes he did. His family back in West Germany couldn't believe he'd done something like this. He'd sent his mother postcards a few times and nothing gave her any indication something was wrong although he did write in the last postcard, sent only days before his killing spree began, I am looking forward to something. 
We now know what that something was. And while there was no doubt in anyone's mind that Joseph Schwab was the Kimberley killer, the reason behind why he did what he did remains a mystery. Coroner David McCann held an inquest into Joseph Schwab's death in December of 1987, and he found that the police had conducted themselves properly. The shooting was justified, he'd refused to surrender, opened fire on them, so they had to defend themselves. If they hadn't, there was a strong feeling with all of the ammunition stockpiles he had that Joseph was indeed going to continue killing people perhaps at the upcoming Fitzroy Crossing Rodeo, which would have been mass bloodshed with the thousands who usually attend the event. That said, local residents in the Northern Territory were reportedly annoyed with the initial investigation, commenting in the media that roadblocks were slow to go up with too many gaps. They also weren't kept informed of the investigation or allowed to put up identikit posters within their places of business to raise awareness of the killer on the loose. The coroner was also quite critical of the lax gun laws in Australia at this time when it came to high-powered firearms and called for the federal government to review the legislation. Unfortunately, these laws wouldn't tighten until 1996 after Port Arthur, with a number of mass shootings occurring over the following decade. As always with these cases, it's not a leap to imagine that Joseph Schwab may have had other victims, and not just in Australia, potentially Germany too. There were a couple of clear timeframes he could have committed more murders in Australia, and there's certainly unsolved murders and missing persons cases from these timeframes in all Australian states. But it's difficult to connect Joseph Schwab in any definitive way. Much like the reason he did this, his potential involvement in other crimes also remains a mystery. And while he was shot dead in 1987, ending his devastating 10-day killing spree, The effects of Joseph Schwab's actions live on. Around the 30th anniversary of their son's death, Otto and Maureen Walkermeyer said, Grief from homicide is a never-ending story. It's like a scar that never heals. Some people think that after a few months, grief should have passed and things should be back to normal. Not so. There is a scar there that will never heal. Even after 30 years, our Christmas is never the same as it was. Philip was a kind and caring young man and was ready to help anyone. He had a great sense of humour, and one of the things we miss is hearing his laugh. It was magic. Our thoughts go out to them and all of the family members of the victims in this tragic tale. What are your thoughts on this one, Sean? Well, I mean, what can you say about this? (laughs) My only thought is probably much the same as everyone else, and it's a question without any clear answer. You know, why? It, it It just seemed like... This guy liked guns and enjoyed killing and inflicting pain that much. You know, eventually he, he wasn't satisfied with shooting pigs and, and buffalo mm. anymore. So I mean, it's just a tragic series of attacks on innocent people enjoying you know, one of the most beautiful regions in our country. And I, I think that's the thing that gets me is the remoteness of where this happened and, and probably that feeling of helplessness that, that must have come over those who, who were killed in this spree. Very sad. Yeah, I I agree. And I think the why really sticks out for me and just the escalation, like you said, like perhaps if you're a hunter, but there are many people who hunt who never escalate and, and don't definitely jump from one, you know, from game hunting to people. It just, it there's got to be something else there that we don't know about. Um, I guess that's a question we'll never know, but um yeah, that's pretty much it from me. Um, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Uh, what's yours? So mine's the 12th man. And uh, so if anyone <laughs> isn't 
particularly familiar with this. Um, it's basically Billy Birmingham. He was sort of a, well, I guess he was a, a comedian or a, a sort of a voice yeah. actor and he used to take off uh, a lot of the Channel 9 sort of cricket commentary team and stuff like that. And he did a number of albums that were really popular and successful in the uh, sort of in the night throughout the nineties, really, um, yeah. and for some time, you know, unless you had the recordings, you know, for the last few years they haven't been re- really available. But he's yeah. he's come onto Spotify in the last little <laughs> while, you know, in the last I don't know how long, six to twelve months. He wasn't there originally, you know, going back a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, and I found I found him, discovered he was he'd uploaded all his stuff on there. And have been uh, uh, re-listening to all of that, which I listened to really throughout <laughs> my teens. So very funny stuff. I'm, I'm sure there'd be a few people. Some of my mates and stuff used to listen to it. Um, my father-in-law did as well when he, when he was younger, and it was it was just yeah, it's very humorous. Good for a bit of a chuckle and to uh, and to relive some of those times. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, I feel like we've been friends for 20-odd years and you've been quoting him on and off that entire time. I don't think he's ever gone. <laughs> I'd like to know a time when you haven't been quoting him or referencing, to be honest, probably yeah. a few throughout the podcast. <laughs> well, I feel like I've rediscovered it, even if it has been in my mind all this time, but uh, what's yours? Um, mine is that it's so basic and bougie, but I'm getting a pedicure this afternoon and I don't care who you are, Getting a pedicure is living. I'm just going to a local shop. It's not really fancy, but there's not many things that feel better or like you've really got your life together or something. I don't know. There's just something where you feel like, yeah, I am looking after myself if I'm getting a pedicure, you know. I just think (laughs) if you haven't ever had one, do it. It's so good. So I'm doing that in a few hours and I'm pretty excited. It's the cherry cherry on top of life, is it? You, exactly. you know, you know, you're you're rolling along quite well when it comes to <laughs> yeah. pedicure time, right? I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, thanks. Uh, that's it from us. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The links in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content as well. We'll be off on the main feed next week, preparing for the next few cases, but we will be on Patreon. We've got an episode coming out next week for uh, all of our Patreon supporters, so uh, we will catch all of you then and uh, the rest of you shortly thereafter. Thanks again for listening. See you then, everyone. Bye. Bye.